what is the gospel and what is our response to the gospel. And there are many ideas in our culture about what the good news of the Bible truly is. And we need to know what that is. After all, you go to Good News Bible Church. Next time someone says, what church do you go to? Say, good news. You want to hear about it? Not about the church, but about the good news. But we do need to ask ourselves, what is the good news? See, in our society, many different versions of the good news have been presented. And one that we need to be careful about is one that seems to de-emphasize the realities of sin, de-emphasize the reality of God's wrath, de-emphasize the need for repentance and a life that reflects our faith. There's a gospel that goes forth like that. And the only thing that's emphasized is that God loves us. And while it is true that God loves us, and that needs to be at the forefront of our minds, right besides it, though, needs to be the reality that God hates sin. And we need to strike that balance. See, a wrong mindset of the gospel, a mishandling of it, leads people astray. And in many ways, that's what's produced in our country. People who say that they believe in Jesus, people who will say that they are Christians on their Facebook, but their lives don't meet up with it. And part of the problem, perhaps, is when they preach the gospel, they just say, God loves you, do you believe in Him? Sure. But if we call them to repent of their sin, you're a new person. When you trust in Jesus, the Holy Spirit takes residency inside of you, and He changes you. See, the gospel changes lives. It, just does not, it does not just change our Facebook status. And we need to come to a, a proper and full understanding of what the gospel is. We'll see then from this text, Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, that undeserving and as helpless as we were, God poured out His grace upon us like a flood. And because of His grace, we respond with joy and our lives reflect a changed life by the power of the Holy Spirit. But to really appreciate, to really appreciate God's grace, His mercy, His love, His kindness, we must understand His hatred towards sin. We must understand our predicament apart from Jesus. Martin Bucer, one of the Protestant reformers, said this, No one appreciates the medicine properly unless he fully understands the seriousness of the disease. And as we apply that to the scriptures, we can't truly appreciate God's forgiving grace until we realize the seriousness of our sin. How bad we were truly off apart from Jesus So I want us to turn our Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. And we're going to begin to expound God's Word, beginning at verse 1. In verses 1 through 3, Paul lays out what life is like apart from Jesus. And he starts out with a word there. He says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins. The word and is a conjunction pointing us to the preceding context. And as we just recited, the preceding context, Paul is praying for the Ephesians. And he says he wants them to know God's immeasurable power. How great God's power is. And then he lays out some examples of God's power toward us who believe. He says that God raised Jesus from the dead. 
He seated him at the right hand of the Father. He put all things under his feet. And then he gave him as head to the church. And we see how God's power is revealed in raising Jesus from the dead and ascending him on high and placing him above all things. But the word and in chapter 2 verse 1 says there's more to God's immeasurable power. Immeasurable power. What we'll see is God's immeasurable power toward us here specifically. See, one of God's greatest displays, if not the greatest display of his power, is how he took a sinful person like you and me and could give us eternal life. And in order to see that, we've got to see how bad our sin really was. Now, some of us here, just don't, we don't remember what life was like apart from Jesus. You may have became a Christian when you were three or four or five or six years old, and, and from that point, you, you heard the gospel, you understood you were bad, you didn't clean your room when you were supposed to, that kind of thing. And then as you got older, you realized, wait, there's more to it than this. But really, you don't remember what it was like, what life was like apart from Jesus. And there's others of you who remember it all too vividly. Say, oh, it was awful. It was awful. My prayer is that we could have the scales of our eyes removed so we can truly see our predicament apart from Jesus. And what Paul does in verses 1, 2, and 3 lays out four descriptions of life apart from Jesus. The first one's there in verses 1 and 2. He says this, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. The first description we have is that apart from Jesus, we are dead people walking kind of like zombies. We have the appearance of life, but at the end of the day, we're truly spiritually dead. Spiritually dead. Dead in the trespasses and sins. Paul lumps those, those similar words together to just convey we rebelled against God's standard. We, we saw the no trespassing sign, and just because it said no trespassing, we stepped over it. And that's how sin is, isn't it? In school, when there's a good kid in class, it's just by nature, we don't want to like them. Why? Because they're good? See, that's what it means to be dead in our sin. We, we, we are almost repulsed by good apart from Jesus. And although we have the appearance of life, Paul says, we're dead. We're dead. He gives a second description in the verse 2. He says, you are following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. You see, the word following shows up two times. That we lived according to two different things he mentions there. He mentions we lived according to the world and according to the prince of the power of the air, which is a reference to the devil. And in a very real sense, apart from Jesus, we are disciples of the world and we are disciples of Satan. That's strong language, but that's how bad off we are apart from Jesus. And if you don't know Jesus today, this is your predicament. So let's look at those two things. He mentions that we're following the course of the world. The course of the world is not referring to the people, but to the trends, to the ideas, to the worldviews, the things that are inherently against God. 1 John 2, 15 through 17, Paul says, Do not love the world or the things of the world. Not talking about people, but the things of the world. And then he describes what he means. He says, Because the things in the world, he says, they are the desires of the flesh, 
the desires of the eyes and the boastful pride of life. The, the ways of the world is to lift up self. It's to say you need that possession to have your identity truly where it needs to be. Our culture has set a standard for what success truly is. And, if we, and apart from Jesus, we go, we go with the flow, following the ways of the world. I remember when I was in Uruguay, South America with my wife for five weeks, uh, doing some mission work. We were still with a, a missionary family who was from Michigan, but they were there in Uruguay. And one day they took us out to an ice cream shop and we got some milkshakes. And I remember the first sip we took, it just was not the same. It, food was different there altogether, but the milkshake was not good. And I remember taking a drink, and I think both Erica and I are kind of like, whoa, this is not too good. And one of us, I don't recall which one, made a comment about how bad it was, but we both were thinking the same thing. And the missionary lady, who's from Michigan, but had been there for so long, she said, oh, you Americans always complain about things. And part of me wants to justify it, like, wait, it's my money. I came to you for something you are offering us, referring to the ice cream shop. I have a right to want to like the milkshake. It's not my fault it's bad. That's kind of how I want to justify it. But really underlining her comment was a true problem in my heart. It's a sense of entitlement. I deserve better. Now there's a reality, customer service is a good thing. But how quickly it morphs into, I deserve better. We don't deserve better. But the ways of the world say, you deserve better. So go out and buy more stuff because you deserve it. Go out and, and, and spend your time doing these things because you deserve it. And that's, that's following the course of the world, going by its standard and not by God's standard. So we make idols of athletes and actors and Apple and apps and activities and our addresses. We make idols of things because that's the way the world does it. But that's following the course of the world. That's not the way of following God. And that's how we go about apart from Jesus. We just follow along with the standard the world has set. But not only are we disciples of the world, but we're disciples of the devil ultimately. That's a strong statement. Paul says we're following the, the, the prince of the power of the air. The air referring to the heavenly realms. The prince of the power of the air referring to the devil. Paul used this similar language in chapter 6, verse 11. Would you turn your Bible over there? Ephesians chapter 6, verses 11 and 12. This is what Paul says. Talking about the armor of God. He says, Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. So the devil is here mentioned specifically. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in where? The heavenly places. And Satan is the devil who oversees all that. He is the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is at work in the sons of disobedience. But we ask, how is it that we are following Satan though, okay? How does does that make sense? Well, Satan is a liar, he's a schemer, and he's crafty. And many times we are following his lead unknowingly. We need to not look any further than Genesis 3, verse 1. It says this, 
Now the serpent, referring to the enemy as he came in the form of a serpent, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord made. He was crafty. Continuing in verse 1, He said to the woman, Did God really say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Clearly God didn't say that. And the woman, referring to Eve, she said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Already Satan's plan is tweaking Eve's mind. God never said don't touch it. It goes on here. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Here in his craftiness, he sprinkles truth with lie. Surely they will know good and evil, but surely they will die. No, they won't be like God. They will be like God in the sense they can know good and evil, but they won't be like God. And you see him already deceiving. And would they follow Satan? in his lead here. We see in Genesis 3, 6, and 7, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was the delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, see how the enemy tricked her? And how she fell? She took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew they were naked. We see how the enemy deceived Adam and Eve. He deceived them to following his ways, to question God's ways. So when Paul says that we were following the prince of the power of the air, when Satan gets us to obey his lead and disobey God, we're following him. We are disciples of him. That's why it says the sons of disobedience in in Ephesians 2 here. See, when we disobey, we're following Satan's lead. So the three things so far, we've seen a description of life apart from Jesus. We are dead people, even though we have the appearance of being alive. Secondly, secondly, uh, lost my point already. We're following the course of this world and following the devil. But thirdly, we see that we also are following our own passions. We're slaves to ourselves. So just before we want to say, oh, the devil is going to take the rap for this. It's his fault. No, no, no. We were, we were slaves to our own sin. Look at verse 3. Among whom we all once lived. That's referring to the sons of disobedience. In the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. We were doing what was right in our own eyes. We were slaves to ourselves. Apart from Jesus, that's what life is like. The last verse of the book of Judges, chapter 21, verse 25, it says this of the Israelites, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. But whether we're talking about the 11th century BC or the 21st century AD, we see this common thread. We do what's right in our own eyes because there's this one common denominator, humanity. See, humanity at its core is rebellious towards God. We do what is right in our own eyes. And even as a nation, we, make, we redefine morality. We, we redefine truth. We redefine life in the womb. We redefine God's standard for marriage. 
We go with the flow of what feels good to us, paying no attention whether or not it pleases God, let alone the consequences of our actions. We let the world dictate beauty. And stores then portray that kind of beauty, paying no attention to what it does about one's self-image and one's purity. See, but we went along what seemed right to us when we're apart from Jesus. We're slaves to ourself. So those are the first three. The fourth thing, fourth description that we see in this text of a life apart from Jesus is this final one mentioned at the end of verse 3. That we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We were by nature children of wrath. It begs the question, whose wrath? We see by the context and throughout Scripture, it's referring to God's wrath. God's wrath is directed toward those who are chil- who, who've, uh, disobeyed Him. People who are dead in their sin, following the world and the devil, slaves to themselves, are objects of God's wrath. I spoke with a guy recently who had a real problem with me talking like this. And he kept emphasizing how God was a God of love. And I recognized that to be true. He said, you know, John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him will not perish and have eternal life. He said, verse 17, For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world. And I say, amen to that. It's true. But the next verse 18 says, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. Go down 18 verses in verse 36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not believe, whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. God's wrath is directed towards sinners, to people who don't believe in Jesus. And see, when our culture has defined the gospel only by God's love and neglected God's wrath, we share an incomplete gospel. Paul says here, the wrath of God is on us who are apart from Jesus. This past week at Founders Week, a week-long conference that Moody has, Moody Bible Institute, they had on Wednesday night a speaker named Francis Chan who joked about this in, in Genesis 6, the, the flood of, of Noah. And he says, you know, we, we talk about the flood often, and we, think, we see pictures of, of an ark with animals, elephants with their trunks up, and the giraffes smiling in, in children's nurseries, don't we? We see these great pictures of an ark, you know, Noah's waving at everybody. But we don't think, well, why was there a flood? And we don't see in Genesis 6, verse 12, it says, God saw the earth and saw that it was corrupt. And he sent a flood as an act of his judgment. Millions of people died in the flood. And only eight lived, those who were on the ark. See, God is a God of love. He saved those eight and two of every kind of animal. But he's also a God of judgment and justice. And this guy I was sharing these things with said, but that's, that's the Old Testament. But God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. We've already seen in John chapter 3 that God says those who reject the Son are condemned already. The wrath of God is on them. We see in Ephesians 2, 3 that we are by nature, that is, we are from our birth, children of wrath. But then we have the greatest display of God's judgment in Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 through 21. 
And I want us to turn there so we can see it with our own eyes. The last book of the Bible, a few chapters from the very end. Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 through 21. This is a scene of the last days when Jesus will come back and execute judgment on the wicked, riding on a horse. This is what John writes in Revelation 19, verses 11 and following. Then I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. Verse 12. His eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. Verse 14. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty on his robe and on his thigh. He has the name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. The fact that he will tread the winepress of God's wrath is a picture of grapes being put on a winepress and being stomped out so the juice would come forward. In the same way, the wicked will be below him and he will stomp them out and their blood will run forward. This is God's wrath towards evil. Continue on in verse 17. When I saw an angel standing in the sun and with a loud voice he called called to all the birds. This is birds of prey. He says, He called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. Verse 19, And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And just like this, the beast was captured. And with it, the false prophet who in its presence had done the signs which he dece- uh, by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. Verse 21, And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. And all the birds were gorged with their flesh. This is a picture of judgment. And when Paul says that apart from Jesus, we are by nature children of wrath, this is the kind of wrath that God has towards disobedience, towards evil. God hates sin. Habakkuk 1.13 tells us, you are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrongdoing. Psalm 11 verses 5 and 6 says, the Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked. And the one who loves violence, let him rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. Psalm 5 verses 5 and 6 says this, The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. 
This is language we're unfamiliar with so often in the Bible. But it's in the scriptures. Because God is a God who has wrath towards sin. He is a God of love and need. And we'll see that in a moment. But we must see the gravity of his hatred towards sin. David Platt in his book Radical says this, In some sense, God also hates sinners. We saw that in Psalm 11 and Psalm 5, verses 5 and 6. He says, you might ask, what happened to God hates the sin and loves the sinner? He says, well, the Bible happened to it. The gospel reveals eternal realities about God that we would sometimes rather not face. We prefer to sit back, enjoy our cliches like, God hates the sin but loves the sinner. And picture God as a father who might help us, all the while ignoring God as a judge who might damn us. Maybe this is why we fill our lives with the constant drivel of entertainment in our culture and in the church. We are afraid that if we stop and really look at God in his word, we might discover that he evokes greater awe and demands deeper worship than we are ready to give him. How we deceive ourselves as humanity, that we're okay. We've got breath in our lungs, we've got strength in our legs, we've got thoughts in our minds, and we think we are alive. But Paul says, no, we're dead. We're dead. Following the world, following the devil, children of wrath, slaves to ourselves, we're dead. See, God's assessment of us does not equate our assessment of ourselves. And apart from Jesus, there is no hope. There's only wrath. How I pray that God would give us eyes to see people through this lens. When we see people as God sees them, that woman is no longer just a single mom. She's, a, she's an enemy of God. She needs Jesus. The guy across the cubicle is not just the guy who drives a sob, but he's a guy who's dead. The woman who delivers your mail is no longer just the woman who delivers your mail. The people next door are not just your neighbors. They're people in need of Jesus. The teen who bags your groceries. The man on the other end of your sales call. The girl next to your locker at school. The guy in your gym class. See them as God sees them. Dead. Following the world and the devil. Slaves to themselves and children of wrath. In need of hope. See them through that lens. Oh, how I pray that God remove our scales. Remove away the indifference we have to the lost. Remove away our apathy. Remove away a mindset that we live in times of peace. We live in times of war. How I pray that God would do this for us. See, some of us, we don't remember what life was like in that place. And others of you say, you remember what it was like, what life was like. And may God use this text here to stir within us just a heart for the lost. We would break for people. We break for people who are dying. Not only do we need to see other people through this lens, we need to see ourselves. See, some people, some of you even here today, think you're alive, but you're really dead. You think you're alive because you come to church. 
But that's, that's not what saves you. Some of you, God's been calling you for months and some even years. He's trying to show you you're not who you think you are. Would today be the day where you say, God, I see, I see I don't have you really. I've been going with the facade, but really I haven't given my life to you. I haven't surrendered to you. And some might be saying, this language is too threatening. You're playing with people's emotions. But when a, a building is burning down and you put the fire alarm down, is that playing with the residents' emotions? See, the, the, the building's burning, brothers and sisters. Let this be the fire alarm pulled. Let's go out and tell people, get out of the building, come to Jesus, have hope in Him. See, if the passage ended in verse 3, I'd say let's eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. There's no hope if it ends at verse 3. But it doesn't. And in verse 4, we see this amazing transition take place where all the hope of eternity lays. There's hardly a conjunction more important than this one in verse 4. It says, but God... But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, He made us alive together with Christ. But God did it. He stepped in. He brought forth a contrast, a reversing of our plight. A poem has been written about how we strive for God, but how we can't do anything. We're dead. And now God comes to us and says, Oh, long and dark the stairs I trod, with stumbling feet to find my God, gaining a foothold bit by bit, then slipping back and losing it, never progressing, striving still, with weakening grasp and fainting will, bleeding to climb to God, while He serenely smiled, unnoting me. Then came a certain time when I loosened my hold and fell thereby. Down to the lowest step, my fall, as if I had not climbed at all. And while I lay despairing there, I heard a footfall on the stair. And in the same path where I, dismayed, faltered and fell and lay afraid. And lo, when hope had ceased to be, my God came down the stairs to me. This is the gospel, brothers and sisters. Look at the reverse that takes place. We were dead. Look at verse 4. We were made alive together with Christ. We were children of wrath. But look in verse 6. He raised us up and seated us with Jesus. We were walking like the world. But we see in verse 10, we now can walk like God because we are His masterpiece created in Christ Jesus for good works to walk in. God has reversed it for us who trust in Jesus Christ. And we ask the question, why would God want to do this? Well, look in verse 4. Being rich in mercy. Mercy is not giving you what you deserve. Verse 4, we see because of His great love. Verse 5, we see by grace you have been saved. Grace is giving you what you don't deserve. 
I'm sorry, mercy is not giving you what you deserve and grace is giving you what you don't deserve. In verse 7, we see the immeasurable riches of His grace. And then we see His kindness. And again in verse 8, we see His grace. God's grace, His mercy, His love, and His kindness is what brought Him to a place to bring verse 4 into existence. He gave us Jesus. He gave us Jesus. He united us with Him. I love how verses 19 through 23, God's immeasurable great power towards us who believe. He rose Christ from the dead. Just as we are united with Christ, we've been raised to life. Just as Christ was seated at the right hand of the Father, verse 6 tells us, because we're united with Christ, we're seated with Him. Just as Christ is head of the church, we're united with Him. We become part of His body. We've been united with Jesus. We've been seated with Him. I love how the word seated, it's like it's already taken place. But I'm on earth, how is this? And there is a sense that God's promises are so sure it is as if they've already taken place. You are seated with Christ now because you are united with Him by faith. What a beautiful picture. But there's also reality that it hasn't fully happened truly yet. There's an already and a not yet that's at play here. And Paul's okay with saying it. We've been united with Christ. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. I want to move on now to chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. And we see here is a response that's been told to us. See, verses 8 through 10 is, is kind of a restating of what the gospel is about. But there's an underlining response that's called here. Verses 8 through 10 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is a gift of God. The fact that we could even trust in Jesus Christ is a display of God's grace. The fact that we can have faith in Him is because of God. He says, this is not of yourself. When you trust in Jesus Christ, don't think it's because you wanted to trust in Him. It's because God enabled you to trust in Him. By His faith, through faith, that you come to know Jesus. It is a gift of God not a result of work so that no one may boast. See, so many world religions try to earn God's favor. They, wa- they want to be in a right standing with God by, by what they do. A pilgrimage to Mecca or to the Holy Land. Giving alms to the poor. Lighting candles and burning incense. Kneeling and standing, kneeling and standing, kneeling and standing. Going to church knocking on doors on Saturday mornings, fasting for days on end. These things cannot earn our favor with God. They can't. It's not by works, because if if it was, we'd boast in it. Yeah, I'm right with God. I fasted for this many days. That's why. 1 Corinthians one thirty one tells us, Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. And that's at the heart of the gospel. God did it. Our good works couldn't do it. Our good works can't make us who are dead become alive. Our good works cannot cause us to stop following the ways of the world and of the devil. They can't make us right with God. 
they show us that we can't do it. The gospel tells us that God hates sin, but in His rich mercy and by His grace and because of His love and kindness, He sent Jesus to die for you. And Jesus took God's wrath. He satisfied it on that cross. As Pastor Ralph said, that's why Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's why he was sweating drops of blood in the Garden of Gethsemane. He knew he would take God's wrath on him. And that's what God did because of his mercy. But you know, knowing the gospel is one thing and responding to it is a whole other thing. As I mentioned, there, there are many, many of us who can recite these truths. But, but have we surrendered our life to Jesus? See, because when we surrender our lives to Jesus, He changes us. The Spirit of God takes residency in us. And then we see verse 10, For we are His workmanship. We become His masterpiece, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We are able to do good works because that's what the Spirit of God has produced in us. We are God's masterpiece. If you were at a congregational meeting a few weeks ago, whenever Joni Rosari shares about this passage, she reminds us that there are designer Jeans and there's also designer Jones. And there's designer Ricks. And designer Carmens. And there's designer all of us who trust in Jesus because He has recreated us. We are new people. The old is gone. The new has come. And because we're new, we can do good works. Not to earn our salvation, but because we've received our salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And we don't have time to look at what good works all entails. But throughout the book of Ephesians, we see different descriptions of how to walk according to the way we've been called. Chapter 4, verse 1 says, I therefore, uh, therefore a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner of the worthy, in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. That's how God operates. And God calls us to walk in a way that is worthy of Him. My prayer is that as we see the gospel and the, the full picture of it, beginning with our sin and God's wrath to God's grace and our receiving, our turning from sin and walking in a way that pleases Him, we'd have a greater view of the gospel. Voice of the Martyrs tweeted on Twitter this past week a quote from a Chinese pastor. And the pastor said this, it doesn't matter if I die or if I live as long as the gospel is spread. And that takes, a, that takes a love for the gospel, an understanding of it, an understanding of people's lostness. That doesn't come naturally. God needs to do that in us. Oh, I pray how we would say, I, I, I see that. That God remove our, the scales from our eyes to see people in their lost state how badly they need Jesus, that we can see ourselves properly, that we can live with a sense of urgency. We can love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Brothers and sisters of good news, you who've trusted in Jesus Christ have been created in Christ to do good works. And would you go out there and tell people about Jesus? Tell those people in your job, your neighbors and your friends. Because verses 1 through 3 is where they stand. And oh, how we would be faithful with verse 4 through 10. Let's pray.
Oh, Father in heaven. Oh, Lord, you know. You know our hearts, God. You search every heart. You know all of us, oh God. And Lord, how I pray that you would stir in us just godly affections, God. Oh, Father, for those here today who love you, Lord, God, help all of us see the world as you see it. To not just see see that, that, that woman next door as just that woman next door. The guy in that cubicle is just that. But help us see people, Lord, and see how you've entrusted the gospel to us to share to them. And Lord, for others here today who just don't know you, they've pretended, Lord, but truly they are dead, following the world and Satan, slaves to themselves and children of wrath. God, I pray that today, today, they would receive your mercy and grace and trust in Jesus. Oh God, as we sing this last song, may we cry out to you, God, and give you all the glory that you deserve. Praise be to you. Amen. Let's stand together. Sing our praises to God who's given us this treasure. I do want our prayer counselors to come forward. And if you come with a prayer burden today related to this message or not related, we, I, I ask that you would come to be prayed with. And, and I'll even go here. If, if you have not trusted in Jesus Christ, if you have not placed your faith in Jesus truly, if you've been living a facade, if, you, if you've been thinking that you're saved by coming to church, but you haven't surrendered your life today, today do it. Do it. Come forward. Come to the stage. I'll, I'll stand here. Others will come with. Come, come here forward. Let today be that day where you know what it is to have peace in God and forgiveness and joy in Him. So let's declare our praises to God together.